Okay. Thank you, Matt. And thank you, everybody. And thank you for all those great founder, uh, the volunteers who make the trail what it is. Um, I know that if we were all together, we, the, uh, there would be craft beer at the back of the room and there would be a lot of camaraderie. So I'm not gonna let COVID spoil our fun. I have my sip of sunshine. I encourage all of you to have that beer that you would have had at the annual meeting and to enjoy the show. And uh, the show is that we're bringing back the founders. So first I have to have a sip. And as they are all appearing on your screen, you see Paul Jarris, Ben Rose and Steve Bushy. I'm gonna uh, share my screen for one second and um, just show you what they used to look like. Oh, uh, I'll need permission to screen share here. All right, so I'll, um, I'll wait for that to happen. But meanwhile, let me start by telling you a story. On March 1st, 1984, three young men, Steve Bushy, Ben Rose, and Paul Jarris, pushed off from the Massachusetts border with the goal of skiing 300 miles the length of Vermont. They called the route they were skiing the Catamount Trail. So I'd like to start with a quiz, a variation on why did the chicken cross the road? And this is why did the skiers cross the state? A, because one of them wrote about it in a college paper and wanted to see if it would work. B, one of them was broke and thought that skiing across Vermont would be a good career move. C, two of them were biking cross country and became delusional whilst biking across the badlands of South Dakota and came up with the idea. D, one of them thought it might impress women, especially the one he just left in Nepal to go ski across Vermont. And E, because they just registered an organization with the Vermont Secretary of State, the Catamount Trail Association, and they needed a clever marketing gimmick. So I'm gonna give you all time to vote on your non-existent um, cards with hanging chads and tell you the answer is all of the above with a lot of creative license taking. Uh, the founders may disagree with the fine points of the way I've characterized their motivations. Um, I'm gonna let you figure out from the stories that we're about to hear who was who. And lest you think that these young guys peaked early and went on to live and ski out of their cars, I wanna uh, reassure you by telling you a little bit about who they are and what they've done since. Ben Rose and Steve Bushy attended high school together at Champlain Valley Union in Hinesburg, where they did outdoor activities together. Ben went on to attend Yale and Steve attended UVM. Steve later got a master's in geography from Carleton University in Canada. His master's thesis was titled, The Catamount Trail, an Introduction, Proposal and Feasibility Review. Um, Paul Jarris was a classmate and regular misadventure partner of Bushy's at UVM. When he skied the Catamount Trail, he was a fourth year medical student at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, so fast forward, Ben Rose went on to be the first executive director of the Catamount Trail Association for a pay of $75 a week. And I'm sure I would like to tell the board and reassure Matt 
that is not a model for the current ED. Um, he was then elected state rep from Williston for two terms and then served as the executive director of the Green Mountain Club for 13 years, never telling them that he plagiarized the GMC's bylaws to use for the new organization called the Catamount Trail Association. For the last decade, uh, Ben has been the master of disaster for the state of Vermont at the Department of Emergency Management. And I can't help but think that skiing the Catamount Trail was perfect preparation for that job. Steve Bushy and his wife, Angela, went on to found Map Adventures, which makes beautiful topographical maps throughout the Northeast and the country and now into Canada. And I can um, vouch for them having just taken one of their pieces of art slash um, maps uh, to Acadia and just um, they are really a joy to follow. Paul Jarris um, did not drop out of medical school as a result of skiing across Vermont. He did in fact become a doctor. And in the early 2000s, he served as Vermont's commissioner of health under Governor Jim Douglas. His responsibilities included overseeing the state's public health, mental health and substance use disorder systems. And he also led the establishment of Vermont's first inpatient substance abuse treatment program for adolescent and women's care. Um, he's also gone on to serve as executive director of the Association of State and Territorial Health Officials, which represents public health agencies uh, throughout the US. And he was chief medical officer of the March of Dimes. So all that work patching blisters for Bushy and Rose while on the Catamount Trail really worked out well for Paul. So with that, um, I'm going to now bring you uh, all in, the founders. Let me see if I can share my screen yet to give that photo. Oh, yes, I can. Um, so I'm going to share a photo of these three gentlemen looking determined and serious and grim uh, skiing the Catamount Trail. This was in 1984. They tell me this was somewhere in Waitsfield. And I just, because we do need to put some current perspective on it, uh, a few images of what the Catamount Trail has become. These are uh, some shots of mine. This is at uh, skiing the Bolton to Trap Trail. Um, also on the Bolton the Trap Trail. More Bolton the Trap. I'm kind of fond of the Bolton the Trap Trail. Um, Anyway, this was just a day there. This is um, over in the Rasta Glades, uh, over uh, in Brandon Gap. Uh, now the Ridgeline Outdoor Collective, I should say. This is skiing another one of rocks, uh, the Braintree Mountain Forest, uh, also Braintree. So the Catamount Trail has grown up to live many wonderful lives uh, since the founders. And um, I stop my screen share. Um, and go back to all of us here. So, you know, as I understand the founding, basically Steve Bushy was the brains of the operation and Paul and Ben were the muscle. Um, and you guys can, can correct me on that, but Steve, let's start with the conception of skiing across Vermont. Explain how you came up with this crazy idea and what the actual route was that you schemed up. And you need to unmute yourself there. 
you're still muted there, Steve. And maybe all three of you can just unmute yourself. Thank you. Let's press this. There you go. Okay, there, you're all unmuted. You've been unmasked and unmuted. So, well, so Steve, well, as first, the brains of the call. operation. No, wait a minute. I have to take contention with that statement. Um, ben and I uh, really were excellent partners in strategizing how to pull this off. And um, when Paul stepped in uh, before the trip, we had a third very good strategist. And so we really, we really worked as a team and we had a lot of support from a lot of really helpful, smart people around the state of Vermont. So, so from the start, people really embraced this concept and there was a lot of muscle and a lot of brain power behind it. So, so it, it's a shared experience. Um, but I wanna get back to the, um, how you actually traced out a route. This was your master's thesis to well, come up with a way to ski across the state. 40 years ago, I was painting a building on Route 7 in Charlotte after Ben and I had gotten back from biking cross country. And uh, the night before we'd gotten a pretty good snowfall on the Green Mountains and I was bored and just staring longingly at the mountains. And I thought we, meaning whoever wanted to go should ski the lengths of Vermont. You know, I thought if Ben and I could bike cross country why not ski the length of Vermont on skinny skis? So that night um, I went home, had dinner and pulled out all my topographic maps and I had a mountain of them in my bedroom and I started piecing together the route. I, I knew of all these trails and um, there were just fragments at that time. That was 40 years ago and uh, it took three or four years to really fill in the fragments. And when the three of us skied it, we, we put it to a reality test. Now, there wasn't a trail or anything even approaching one, but you had worked um, doing a cross-country ski atlas, right? So you kind of knew of a way to string together uh, what were then a lot more cross-country centers than there are now. Um, and, and was that the original idea, was to kind of connect all of Vermont's cross-country centers? Uh, exa exactly. There were, at the time, probably a couple dozen cross-country ski centers strung along the spine of the Green Mountains. And uh, I thought that those centers would serve as good base stations where people could ski from center to center and get services. And a lot of them were in, so people... I had this romantic notion that people could ski from end to end, which was we discovered skiing uh, ourselves was far from the truth, um, but maybe it's matured to that point now. So uh, Ben, um, how did you get, you were traveling around the world with your girlfriend and you left her in Asia to ski across the state. Um, how do you really explain that to her? And 
<laughs> hello, hello, everybody. Hello, David, and Paul, and Steve, and um, hello, everybody. And uh, thank you to all the people who are on this uh, on this call and have been mentioned and uh, uh, for working on the Catamount Trail. So um, it's funny because Steve started out by talking about all the people who were involved, and I I was going to try to start out the same way, and I quickly sketched out a list of all the people who were absolutely integral to the start of the Catamount Trail. And I had I came up with a list of names that I want to rattle off if you'll indulge me. But the first name on the list is Lori Fisher, my then girlfriend, now wife. And um, Lori was a friend of Steve's at UVM. And I had taken a year off and was traveling around out west um, and wrote a letter to Steve, which he showed to Lori because Lori was interested in taking a trip herself when she graduated. And um, then the summer I got home, 1980, um, Lori and I first set eyes on each other on July 3rd, 1980 on the Bushies porch in Williston Village. And, um, and uh, Lori did eventually take off for New Zealand and then sold her round trip ticket and met all these travelers and decided she would go home on the hippie trail the long way and wrote me a letter in the summer of 1982 as I was graduating from college, inviting me along. And so um, I asked my parents to buy me a one-way ticket to Sydney and I joined Lori and we spent a year and a half uh, traveling uh, overland, mostly through Asia. And um, the understanding from the get-go was that I had made a commitment to my friend Steve to ski the length of Vermont uh, when he was ready for his proof of concept as he went off to do his master's at Ottawa. Um, and um, we th I thought he was going to be ready in 1985. And he actually, uh, when the letters would catch up with us at Poste Restante in various uh, cities, uh, we realized, okay, Steve is ready to go in the late winter of 1984. And at that point, Lori and I were in Nepal and I was actually frankly tired. I, I, um, we had gotten dysentery in Indonesia and I weighed about 136 pounds at one point. And, um, and I was ready to go home and Lori was ready to keep going and she kept traveling through India. And in January of 1984, I flew home and started trying to rebuild myself to be ready to uh, ski end to end in a few months. Well, I know you're now uh, newly a grandfather, Ben, and I hope as you pass along relationship advice to your kids and grandchildren, leaving your girlfriend in Asia to go skiing is not one of the things that you uh, recommend, but um, let's move on to Paul. When you put it that way, it's, it's tough. <laughs> But before we leave Lori Fisher, let me let me just say for the record that she actually drew the Catamount Trail paw print that's on the logo. Wow. Yeah. Okay, good. We're getting attributions for all these uh, things. So, Paul, here you are in medical school, fourth year. So you're the end is near, and you kind of take a uh, uh, you a, a hard right turn and go skiing in Vermont, uh, explain. And I don't mean to sound like your parents, uh, but that may have been something they said as well. Well, it actually took a lot of strategy because time off was very hard or if not impossible to get. So 
but I knew that the dean really didn't like people taking a year off because um, it messed up, you know, the admissions and all that. And so I figured that was my strategy. So I went into the dean and said, I want a year off. And uh, from that point, because she didn't want that to happen, I was able to negotiate actually several months off because I did a, uh, I was on a, a canoe trip that did the first expedition, uh, first descent of the Delay River in Canada. Um, that was a couple months. And then I went up to Alaska and worked um, with it um, in the Yukon Kosukum Delta uh, with the Yupik people. And I was up there right before the trip occurred. And so I came back for the trip and um, I think uh, Steve and Ben were a little pissed at me for having missed some of the work, which they got the revenge for. And I can show you that. Um, the, uh, this is actually uh, volume one, number one of the Catamount Trail news, which I guess you can't, I can't get this on there to see. But <laughs> if you look at it, there's actually a, there you go. got a copy too. Yep. If you look at the paw print there, that's the first one that actually I drew. And the reason I know that is because it had three toes. <laughs> and Jim McCullough from the Catamount Family Center wrote our, our first letter asking us why we had a three-toed tree sloth on the cover of the, uh, the first edition. Um, but there was payback. And Ben, if you'll show the last page of that uh, thing. Oh, yeah. Which uh, so we had gotten equipment from all these equipment manufacturers uh, down a little bit, and um, and they were really beautiful. Like we thought we had died and gone to heaven. We got two pairs of skis and poles and boots. You got to go down a little, Ben. Want to show? Uh, no, the other way. Yeah, the other down. Thanks. So as a revenge, Ben put this quote in there, which he made up for me, saying that we're on the trail all day. It's great to feel so warm, cozy, and snazzy which needless to say, were not my words, <laughs> but, but so anyway, they were revenge. Um, the other thing I thought I would show you, because I went through my files before the meeting today is, and maybe you can see that from there, but I know what I'll do. This is a, um, this is the brainstorming sheet that Steve Bushy and I used uh, to come up with the name Catamount Trail. One, I'm sorry, I can't get it, but one night, there we go. One night we were in Vermont and uh, this is the back of one of Steve's letter asking Ben and I each for 300 bucks or hundred bucks each. But you would be very happy that we didn't pick the majority of these names. And, and most of the bad ideas were Steve's like the Wampalufus Trail. That would really be a good one, right? Uh, Greg, you would enjoy that. Anyway, I don't know, until we finally got to the Catamount Nordic Ski Trail, which we decided was a good idea. Paul, uh, just one, to chime in one quick thing. We actually had one press conference where we were going to announce the uh, establishment of the Trans-Vermont Nordic Ski Touring Association. And that morning, we realized that if it was going to be the Catamount Trail, it should also be the Catamount Trail Association. Yeah. So the last little bit I'll show you here uh, is the first uh, Vermont Cynic article that they did. And gosh, I'm really sorry this isn't clear. But on the cover is Mayor Bernie Sanders along with the announcement of the Catamount Trail being skied. So a little history. So um, explain, I'm not sure if it, uh, who's the best one to answer this, but you guys registered the Catamount Trail Association. You weren't just going to ski. You had this idea that this would be a kind of a movement, an ongoing organization. What was your vision at that time? Well, we, 
really felt that the ski trip would generate a lot of excitement around the state. And um, we needed a place to invest that excitement. Um, three young 20 something year old guys, uh, you know, we weren't in a position to say, just give us your money. Uh, we really needed a legitimate um, vehicle to carry it. And uh, so Ben and I registered, but Laurie Fisher was working at the time for the Lake Champlain Committee and still is. And I think Laurie was um, a very important prod in terms of um, sending us down the nonprofit road. And that was, that was a very strategic decision at the time to start the trip uh, with a nonprofit uh, under our belt. And people felt very good uh, climbing aboard and uh, even even generating membership as we skied. Your thoughts, Ben? Yeah, I'll, I'll add to that. Um, first of all, we had the first edition, volume one, number one of the newsletter with us printed, and we were handing them out like candy during that first ski trip. So we already had articulated introducing the Catamount Trail. There was an article called End to End Evolutionary History in which we gave uh, recognition to Lance Tapley, David, Daniel Perry, and Andy Solensky from Guilford, uh, who had skied in 1966 from Guilford to Richford, three people from Maine who had actually skied it, but they had done it as a trip, not a, a trail. Um, and we, we basically were promoting the idea of a permanent trail from, from the get-go. Um, yeah, and there was thought given to also, that's one of the reasons to go through all the different ski, uh, ski centers. And then going through a ski center, it was arranged for the local ski pro to be our guide, which basically meant Steve went over the map with them, told them what to do. And only once did we not do that and the ski guide got us lost. Um, but we also uh, arranged to have quote, press conferences at this lodges at night which turned out to be exhausting because we were shuttling two cars back, skiing, shuttling two cars back and forth. And all we wanted to do at night was to take a shower and go to sleep. Um, and yet we had to talk to people at night. Um, some of whom asked amazingly insightful questions such as, well, who will pick up the litter on the trail? <laughs> um, it, so so it, it was, there was thought given to it all along. So let's talk about the actual skiing of the trail that didn't exactly exist. Um, Paul, you want to pick it up there? What, it was, what was it like? It was amazing. Uh, it was just so beautiful to be out in Vermont for all those days. I should say that driving down to southern Vermont, though, there was no snow on the ground. But we decided that we would just backpack or hike if that's what it took, because we had set this whole thing off and actually to, to change every night for all that time would have been a nightmare. Um, but that night, magically it snowed and we had beautiful skiing. Uh, in fact, the only thing that stopped us from skiing was I think it was on the Bolton to Trap Trail. We got so much snow, we were double poling downhill and not going anywhere. So we decided to take a night off to let things settle a little bit. But <coughs> The skiing was just amazing, wonderful. Hmm. Um, ben, what do you remember of the actual skiing? Well, I remember too that there was this weird snowless February and people were asking us, what are you going to do? 
And we said, we'll trudge in the mud if we need to, because we have free overnight lodging lined <laughs> up every night for three weeks. And we'll get there. Um, and what I remember, too, is that it was uh, about 39 and raining hard all the way down as we drove from Burlington down 89 and 91. And we got to Brattleboro. It was 37 degrees and raining. We went uphill on Route 9, headed west. And as we went uphill, it turned to big fat flakes. By the time we woke up at the White House in Wilmington the next morning, there was three inches of cemented slush on the ground, which set a base. And then it flurried and squalled a few inches of fluff every night for the next week. And we were set up with gorgeous snow for the whole month of March, basically. Well, for the first two weeks. And then we had that huge dump. It, what I remember, Paul, is that we very nearly froze to death on the Bolton to Trap Trail. It was five below zero when we were up there and we were exhausted. And we had to make it to Trap Family Lodge. And we got there pretty much exhausted. And then, then there was that huge 18 inch dump and we just decided to wait a day rather than slogging up through Smuggler's Notch. Well, I, yeah. I remember feeling very responsible being the um, first navigator, if you will. Uh, I had assured everyone that there was a passable trail. And um, in reality, uh, there were some pretty long um, forested gaps with no trail at all that we had to bushwhack through. Um, the, one of the longest bushwhacks uh, was probably 12 miles up and over the spine of the Green Mountains. And uh, our, we took an erroneous compass bearing and ended up uh, at the end of the run, probably four miles off and totally lost. But because we were at close to 3000 feet and uh, on top of four feet of snow, we were able to just ski downhill. And uh, after an hour, uh, an hour plunge downhill, we found a snowmobile trail and the guys in the snowmobiles told us where we were and we were happy again, but we often had experiences where we would, I wouldn't say we would be lost in the woods, but we would be between two points, two known points, not knowing where we were, uh, but knowing the direction we should go. Yeah, I remember that. Also. I think that we, we clearly, I mean, to me, it was a wake-up call. We had to pay attention to the orienteering. You couldn't let your mind go. Otherwise, we would end up in the middle of nowhere. And I, I, on that day, Steve, I remember we actually voted twice whether or not we should just build a snow cave and stay overnight in the woods because we were lost. And the other thing I remember is that snowmobile happened to have a little flask. That's what I was on the way. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah, so, we were very glad to get to the Mount Tabor Road. And that guy did have a flask. And that was a very long day. So these press conferences at night, I mean, um, who was coming to cover it and what was the coverage like as you were skiing? Well, we, we were 24, 23, 24 year old idiots and we never said no to any publicity. And in addition to the press conferences, we had um, uh, Vermont Public Television, Enzo DeMaio, and a film group following us, which really put a lot of pressure on us to, to ski and look good when we were skiing. And we would get into these places after being filmed, 
and skiing hard. And we would have to sort of talk with some level of um, intelligence. And when the camera stopped rolling, uh, we would really start fading pretty fast. Yeah. Um, Paul alluded to something else that was a logistical reality. Um, after we arrived and socialized with our host for the night, we had two vehicles, Paul's van and Steve's truck. And if you think about this, every night we would arrive to where one of our vehicles was parked, we would have to keep everything we were gonna ski with the next day, load up that vehicle, drive down the mountain, drive back to where we had started that day, pick up the other vehicle, drive down the mountain, drive north twice the distance of a day's ski, drop off the vehicle with everything in it except what we would need, then drive back down the mountain, back the previous day, the next day's ski, and then back up the mountain, and then we were home for the night. So <laughs> two drivers had a lot of driving to do every night, and sometimes it was hairy. So Ben, yeah. did you have a favorite uh, section of trail from that original ski? Well, we, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of beautiful days. Um, the natural turnpike with Jim Painter and Ruth Painter was really beautiful. Um, the, we went through Smuggler's Notch and went north along the railroad tracks to Bakersfield. And then we had a beautiful spring day going up through the Cold Hollow Mountains. And we came into um, um, Hazen's Notch from the west. And the following year, people said, hey, guys, you're, you're in the wrong place. The, the trail should be in the upper Lamoille Valley in the snow belt. Go to Crassbury. Don't go east. Don't go to the west. And so that, that got changed. And, and the trail now jogs over towards Crassbury. But we had a beautiful day in the Cold Hollow Mountains. But if I may, um, David, let me just take one minute because I, I do want to rattle off this list of names because all of these people were integral. And I don't know if any of them are on this call, but they are the, the people who are really the engine of having the trail become a reality. And we've mentioned a few of them, but during our trip, we had guidance from local ski legends, if you will, uh, Kelly Kaler, Armand Roy, John Tidd, um, Val Shadinger, uh, Ruth and, and um, her, her, her painter and Jim Painter, uh, Dave Brodigam, Gardner Lane. And then within those first few years, uh, people stepped up to say, this is worth doing. John Broadhead, Gene Kistner, Jack Lesnick, Vic Wood, Jim and Mary Lou Briggs, John Schweitzer, Bob Pramick, Gene Coelho, Rick Sharp, John King, Ann Beale, Deb Kozlowski, Greg Gerdell, Brian Liss, George Plum, Dave and Carol Smith, Alan Barb Stiles, Sue Lester, Randy Whitlicky, Barb Farr. And I also want to acknowledge the executive directors um, who, who kept, the, kept this thing on the track. Um, Steve Gladstone, Ray Auger, Penny McEdwards Rand, Ted Milks, and Kelsey. And I hope I didn't miss anybody.
but I'm not sure that. I think Jim Fredericks is also on that list. Oh, Jim Fredericks, right. I knew there was somebody, right. So every one of those people has helped to turn this thing into a real organization. Thank you for that. That is great. Even all these years later to, uh, and a lot of those names, people recognize as kind of um, pioneers of skiing in Vermont in all its forms. Um, so it's amazing to hear that they were all in on the founding of this. And actually that I just reminded myself of one more name um, and Steve might chime in on this. Somehow Steve had arranged that when we were skiing up in Northern Vermont, we had coffee at a diner with, who was that guy, Steve? It wasn't Jack Rabbit Johansson, but it was some- Was it Lance Tapley? Well, no, Lance met us too with his 14-year-old son. Yes. But there was also that fellow, he was in his 80s. He was one of the original skiing people in Vermont. Oh. Um, not Jack Candy. Uh, no, I'm, but he's another one. Okay. <laughs> it, it will come to me later. Yeah, yeah. Um, I wonder if um, you could talk about the Catamount Trail today as you've seen it uh, evolve and now evolving and, and becoming the umbrella for all these you know, community supported backcountry groups like uh, Ridgeline Outdoor, formerly Rasta, New, the New uh, NEK Backcountry Coalition, uh, DASH, um, Southern Vermont Trails Association. Um, the CTA is suddenly a parent of many children. Um, Steve, what do you make of this evolution from being the steward of a single trail corridor to being kind of the, the, the home, the umbrella for all of these community groups. Well, it's, it's gone in directions that I never envisioned and it's exceeded all my expectations. And when I was trying to conceive of, of a concept or a network like the Catamount Trail during my college school days in Canada, uh, I was perhaps relying more upon a Canadian model uh, of, of low hills and villages integrated by ski trails connecting the villages or, or a Norwegian model um, where there are ski trails everywhere and um, missing from the whole concept uh, were the 4,000 foot ridges in Vermont that um, had bountiful snowfalls uh, late into the season and the idea that you could just ski up you could ski up and ski down. And that's, that's one thing uh, I, I never really thought about. I, I was always thinking about going from point to point. So the up and down evaded my imagination. Any, uh, Paul or Ben, you wanna add to that as you've seen kind of this evolve? I think it's absolutely amazing. I mean, it's so far beyond anything we could have ever dreamed of. And, it, it was also, I remember distinctly, I don't know, maybe it was 20 years ago, this feeling about how we got this thing started, but how it just took off and other people ran it, were responsible for the success of it, um, not us. And, and that was just so incredible. It's kind of like seeing your kid go leave home and grow up and you know do so well beyond what you expected. So 
Um, and, and I think the other group that I don't know if we've mentioned yet tonight, we absolutely have to are the landowners who so generously, I think 60% of the trail is on private land. I mean, what a testament to the spirit of landowners to support something like this. Um, and I, I think we all have to be so grateful to them, as well as the, the cities, the state, and the federal government who help so much. Yeah, I, I want to pick up on that. Um, Paul's expressing something that I feel too, and I want to talk about it a little more. And as we're talking, I'm thinking about all these other people we need to acknowledge and thank. I mean, Howard Dean was one of the first landowners to give the Kennemount Trail an easement. Um, I'm thinking of some of our early donors. The early donors were responding to articles. Every time there was an article about the Catamount Trail, people would send us checks. And, and David, you were one of the writers. Bill McKibben wrote an article about it. There, you know, so, so there was a very symbiotic relationship with the, the skiing press, if you will. Um, and that's how people found out about it. Um, the thing that Paul said that really um, resonates with me is that I think that the, being involved with the inception of this idea and watching it take off has, has made me an optimist for life. It was such an affirming experience to see the power of an idea and the nonprofit model at work and people taking the idea and running with it beyond our energy or, or know-how. Um, and I remember when I applied to be executive director of the Green Mountain Club, which was really the, the heart, the middle third of my career. I remember saying to them, I, I know the power of the, the, the long trail club model. I understand this because we plagiarized it. <laughs> and it's, you know, part of the story that we should tell Steve is Steve actually went to a board meeting of the Green Mountain Club before we even skied and said, hey, with the Green Mountain, I wasn't there, but I, my understanding, Steve, is that you asked if the Green Mountain Club wanted to take on this project and the old wise men of the Green Mountain Club said, oh, no, we've got our hands filled with the long trail. We wish you young fellas luck, you know, go go do good work. And we were momentarily crushed. And then we realized we could just take our typewriter and replicate the bylaws and do it all over again. Um, and I think that in retrospect, that was a very wise decision. Now, people have suggested over the years that the Green Mountain Club and the Catamount Trail should merge. And I think it's a terrible idea. I mean, I think we have lots of people who are members of both. And, you know, the numbers say that there's more, more members and more dollars in having two separate organizations, which may have overlap. But the, the idea of a winter trail is distinctly different from the long trail. And I, one of the things that was part of the, the big idea for me from the beginning was that green, the Long Trail already existed and that by having a catamount trail that would wind in and around it, we were essentially defining a recreational green belt or a, a, a wild corridor with muscle powered recreation that, would, that was bigger than just one trail. It was really a ribbon of wild recreational lands running up the spine of the state. And I thought that was really romantic and powerful and I, people responded to it. Paul, well, I wonder, uh, I'd like to ask each of you um, to sort of talk about how that fateful crossing of the state um, sort of 
influenced your life, you know, what you did since. And uh, Paul, uh, you know, you're the, the being a physician, uh, it's not obviously related to what you went on to do, but I suspect it is in some ways. What would you say? I think there was, there's a really, for me, important lesson in it that, that I reused over and over in my life. And that is, if you have a good idea and the energy, you don't have to know how to really accomplish it. You know, you don't have to sit down and know from beginning to end what's going to happen. You have faith that along the way, you'll figure it out and that the idea will carry you through. Um, and I, I, I think I just used that in my last career move where we began this program uh, to support health agencies during COVID um, based on we had a concept. Um, but I had no idea how to build software and all that stuff. We got a team together, we did it. And it was like serving 40 million Americans by, by the time I left and turned it over. But you know, just that it's so easy to kill an idea by saying, well, you haven't figured this out, you haven't figured that out. It doesn't matter. You'll figure it out. Just get the idea and go for it. Um, that life sends, tends to work out. And I think that to me was such an important lesson here. That's great. I love that. What about you, Steve? I. You know, I think one thing that I took away from it is the strength in community and the value of building long-term partnerships. And uh, I, I don't think we could have ever skied it if Ben, Paul and I had not done so many things that were trying and testing before where we were successful and we had some some pretty interesting failures, one of them on the slopes of uh, Mount Katahdin, um, where our tents basically got washed away in January, and we survived, but um, it wasn't a highlight of our winter career, but we got through it, and a number of years later, we skied the length of Vermont, but, but the community and friendship uh, and support that we had before going into that trip and taking that community and broadening it as we skied from south to north, um, I, I, I felt like we, we really spurred on the organization by giving it away from the start or creating as we went day by day, a larger family. And we didn't wanna hold on to it ourselves. We wanted to be part of it, but we wanted everyone else to be part of it. And uh, there were many times where um, if it was just the three of us skiing alone, it would have been very difficult to ski through it. But the people that we knew along the way often would get us through in one way or the other. You know, they would assure us that while we were an hour or two away from, uh, you know, Jack Handy's doorstep, and there would be a place to sleep and a good meal. And, you know, just just trust me, it's dark. Um, it'll be dark in another hour and I know the trail, just follow me. So, so that experience with others really pulled us through. And I think we all live by that code of community. Mm. You said something um, to me uh, in an earlier interview, Steve, that I thought was very poignant. You said, you know, I don't need people to remember my name, that it was uh, Steve, Ben, and Paul who skied 
the Catamount Trail because I don't want it to be, you know, some cult of personality or or char the charismatic leader who can never be replaced. Um, you wanted the focus to be on the trail. And of course, as we see here tonight, we're not willing to let the three of you vanish into obscurity. But I just thought that was a very kind of poignant uh, point that you made then. Well, one, one of the wise men that we knew, Jack Lesnick, um, there was a moment a couple of years after the formation of, of the Catamount Trail Association. And I think there were many moments in the first five or six or seven years where we felt things were going good, but they weren't going fast enough. And we had other draws on our time. And Jack was probably 50 years older than us and certainly a wise man from Barnett, Vermont. And he just reassured us. I think Ben, you were with me at the time. Jack said, um, from acorns grow great oaks. And he left it at that. And I, we planted an acorn and I see a great oak now. And this oak will live, red oaks live centuries. And so I'm very proud of this. I'm, I'm proud that we can all see the oak and enjoy what it has to offer. Beautiful thought. Um, I also want to tell our viewers that if you have questions, please enter them in the Q&A um, part on, um, okay, uh, yes, uh, the Q&A section on the, uh, the Zoom webinar, and we'll hand those to, um, toss those to our panelists. Ben, I'm curious, you know, you've spent a lot of your professional career in the last decade looking at the impacts of climate change and resilience. Um, what is the future of the Catamount Trail in the era of climate change? Well, thank you for that question, David. <clears throat> I was trying to think about how to work our way to that <clears throat> topic. Um, I think from very early on, we were aware that the greatest existential threat to the future viability of the Catamount Trail was climate change. And um, much as I like to think of it as an oak that will live hundreds of years, based on the client science, I'm not convinced that skiing end-to-end -end Vermont is going to be viable in a hundred years. Yeah, we just we'll keep it going it. as long as we can, but one of the symbolic powerful values of the Catamount Trail is as a canary in a coal mine. Well, and I think, um, Steve, you've made this point to me that the evolution of the trail into these backcountry groups is essentially taking the trail to higher and higher elevations, which is particularly appropriate in this climate changing I, era. I think, I think that's critical and, uh, you know, in the beginning of the meeting, uh, you some of this equipment and the trail work that's being done in the woods, the trail can be moved to higher elevations. And I think it's critical that the trail keep moving up the slopes, the Eastern slopes of Green Mountains where there will probably be good snow load for I suspect many decades. When we skied it in 1984, the original route went through Smuggler's Notch and 
northwestward up through Bakersfield at an elevation about 400 feet. And we found out in middle of March or March 20th or 21st that we were on the wrong side of mountains. It was too warm. Uh, we had two feet of snow a couple days before we hit Bakersfield and it was melting rapidly. It was probably 50 degrees and we'd peeled down to, um, <laughs> we'd, we'd peeled our shirts off and we were skiing topless and not something I'd want to do today, <laughs> but it, it was pretty warm even then on the western side of the mountains. We, we um, as a last resort, we were skiing between railroad tracks where there was enough snow and because the tracks were flat and um, somewhat packed by snowmobiles, we were able to move pretty quickly north, which got us out of the banana belt and into the cold hollow mountains. But um, after, uh, the year after the trail immediately jumped over the ridge to the snow belt of Craftsbury. So we, that was the first uh, climate change reroute. I remember with our ski, we had the Kodiak, Karu Kodiak multi-grades, which were really loved those skis. We had no middle edges or anything, I mean, but, um, that ski could adapt to almost anything. So we, if we found on that warm day that the only place you could glide was on the side of the road where that had been salt, where the snow had been salted. And so that's where we were skiing. Anything else clumped your skis. That was yeah. a question, which was your, about your equipment. Of course, the favorite thing of skiers to talk about while they ski. So it was car who, were those a partial metal edge skis? No, just nope. a metal edges. Well, I didn't mind without them. It should be said that during the month before the trip, um, Steve and I had hit up a lot of different folks for freebies. And it was sort of like a little Himalayan expedition in the backyard. And we had uh, skis, uh, Carhu skis, courtesy of the ski rack. And we had Solomon boots and bindings. We had these snazzy uh, little zoot suits, which we had never had Lycra suits before. And uh, we got those from the ski rack. Um, and um, we had um, Gordini super gloves, which saved us up on the really cold track family lodge day. Um, so so th those sponsors really came through and equipped us. None of us were had sophisticated backcountry equipment before a month before the trip. Hmm. I was still using wooden skis before we got those, and which I loved. Yeah. All right, so we have a question here from Jess Alexant. Did any of the old CCC trails play a role in the routing. And uh, they write, I skied north of the Waterbury Reservoir in 1977 and came across old CCC ski trail signs in the woods. There, there were some CCC trail segments um, up and down the state that we skied over. And I dearly love the CCC and all the great work that they did. Um, I think the segments correlated with the state parks and forest and the, the camps, the CC, CCC camps. But um, we skied it 50 years after the CCC did their great deeds. Mm -hmm. Well, um, I know that uh, in the course of organizing this, you guys are still very active. Uh, Paul, you were biking cross country last month, I think when we were originally connecting around this. 
And you mentioned something uh, when we first communicated, Paul, that uh, about a reunion tour. And I wondered if you want to say something about that. Yeah, I, I was thinking it would be a lot of fun uh, uh, 20, uh, 2024, that's 40 years, to uh, redo an end-to-end. -end. And I'm, I'm planning on staying in good enough shape to push uh, Ben and Carrie Steve um on the trip <laughs> but uh i think it would be a whole lot of fun and if that would help the, the club to uh do some fundraising all the better but uh I, i'd love to do another end to end in fact I, i'm saying uh, i'm still waiting for my end to end coffee mug it's only been 37 years <laughs> clearly they're baiting you to do again to really earn that mug well, what say you, Steve and Ben? Do you uh, does it sound like something you're up for? I think we would need some help with uh, shuttling. Oh God, yeah. <laughs> but I, I'm in. For the record, I'm absolutely in. I've been telling our kids for years that I want them and any offspring they have to plan now for helping me to ski the Catamount Trail in 2034 for the mm -hmm. 50th anniversary. So this 40th anniversary fundraising or whatever, piece of cake, I'm in, Paul. <laughs> well, David, um, an interesting question in the chat, by the way. And that question would be, um, how did you get over Huntington Gap? Oh. Is that the one oh. you're talking about? No, no, this one's from Nate Hausman. Oh, I can in the chat. Okay, go ahead and read it. I'm curious how the skiing the state the first time changed your friendship. Was it all peachy or there were trying times between you on the trail? Aside from tonight's event, how often do you connect with each other? Do you still feel a special kinship from that shared ski experience? Well, that's a whole bunch of questions. Um, I could say, I, I, let me start with a couple of those. One is that I think we had done so much together um, on an absolute shoestring. Uh, for so many years, we used to love going winter, uh, you know, winter camping all the time or anything that we had really tested each other and got to know each other, um, including disagreed with each other. And I, I, I just have to point out that when we went to Mount Katahdin um, on our trip, and it, it ranged from 20 below to probably 30 above, uh, Ben was in charge of buying food. And instead of buying hot cocoa, he bought jello, hot jello to drink. And if you can get over that, you can get over anything. I mean, that was Ben. I still will never forgive you for that. That was horrible. Was that me? I don't even know if that was me. That was you. Don't deny it. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, Paul, it wasn't Ben. I won't. I won't name the individual, but you're you're pinning that on the wrong man. Oh, <laughs> I, I can't let this go, Ben. I've held this grudge against you my whole life. <laughs> Carry on. Um, to another question. Yes, we do. I think still share. Um, a strong friendship and a bond. I mean, I, I count my blessings in life and uh, I trace a lot of those, those blessings and good outcomes back to my friendship with Steve Bushy. I mean, he introduced me to Lori and, um, and the Catamount Trail, like I say, set me up for an optimistic outlook my whole life. It's, it's been, uh, you know, a charm thing to be part of. And um, the three of us, haven't always stayed in as close touch as we should, but I think we're we're lifelong friends to where we can you know we can reconnect after a, a few years without connecting. And in recent years, we did we did have a ski weekend together 
was that the week, the year right before COVID, I guess. And I, we should do that again soon. And um, yeah, yeah, it's it's been a great friendship. And for me, biking cross country this summer, I had Steve Bushy on speed dial to be my navigator and topographer whenever I needed him. And he only led me wrong once. <laughs> maybe maybe yeah. more than that, Paul. I, yes. Vortex. I'm glad you're alive. Yes. <laughs> there was one night um, at the Village Inn um, after about a week of skiing and we were starting to get tired and I still harbor bitterness towards Steve and Paul uh, that, <laughs> that started that night because they had both arranged for their, their girlfriends to, to meet them that night. And I had no such arrangement. And uh, so I, me plus the young reporter from the UVM Cynic were the drivers that night who headed out into a snowstorm to do like two and a half hours of white knuckle driving. And I was thinking of Steve and Paul and their their friends in the hot tub, and I was pretty bitter. <laughs> well, um, any closing thoughts uh, the three of you want to share about um, your experience, the Catamount Trail today, or anything you'd like to say? I just like to say thank you. I mean, thank you to these two guys who are involving me in this great adventure, but thank you to all the board, the staff, the volunteers who have made this thing come alive and go places we never ever thought it would go and it's it's uh you know it has been 37 years and that means people are coming and coming you know more and more people coming to, to keep carrying these things on and I just really want to thank people and again the landowners I, I didn't mention that so it's it's amazing what everyone's done with an idea well i i am as awestruck today by the organization where it's gone as i was um, probably 40 years ago when, when the idea floated into my head. Um, and as I was, when the three of us were skiing along the length of the trail, it's, it's really remarkable. And I'm very, you know, I'm very thankful for my friendship and partnership with Paul and Ben and all the others that have made it happen. And, uh, you know, I really look forward to other other adventures in the future. So I'm just awestruck and thankful. Yeah, ditto all of that. Um, I'll also say that um, I was glad to hear Nate mention the, the Legacy Society. I'm still chewing on that name, but um, the, the Catamount Trail is in our wells and I hope it's in lots of people's wills. And I hope that in some form, um, this, this citizen organization uh, to promote backcountry skiing in Vermont um, will, will carry on for a very long time. Well, on that note, I wanna thank uh, all three of you, uh, Paul Jarrett, Steve Bushy and Ben Rose, both for joining us tonight and for blazing the trail for the rest of us.